Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 257, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. This episode, two countries have banned cell phones in schools, and another may be on the way. What does the future look like for phones in U.S. classrooms? Stay with us. This is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each episode, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This episode, our guest offers us coaching tips for those overwhelmed educators. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by friend, chief academic officer, as well as co-host of the Classes Miss podcast, Dr. Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing today? I am pretty good for this new year. Right. Here we are in the new year. Um, everyone headed back to school. Things seem to be good in my world. I guess they're good in your world. Um, is there any like big plans or anything as you kind of head to the second part of the year, or do you just kind of stick to the plan you already had in place? Well, you know, the, the third term is always the great race. Um, in my curriculum world, the third term is extremely critical. While we know we have, you know, an entire semester, there's a lot to accomplish in that third term. You're looking at making sure students have good attendance. You're tracking data to make sure that they're on target to meet their growth goals and you're trying to increase communication with parents and just make sure that all your T's are crossed and all your I's are dotted because right after that third term is unfortunately what we all have to look forward to is testing season. So there's a lot to happen for me in the next nine weeks. As I was searching for stories to talk about in this particular episode, um, I saw multiple things pop up about the distraction that cell phones are in the classroom. And, and for- Hilarious that you brought that up. Right. Because one of the really big things that came out of last season's uh, testing remarks from our State Department um, was inappropriate use of cell phones and cell phones being um, a problem in the secure testing area. So I will have to harp on that this spring. Hmm. I mean, but it, even outside of testing, just like on a day-to-day basis, I guess things are so weird because like when I grew up, late 90s, I'm in high school, um, cell phones were just starting to come out and we were not allowed to have them in school. I uh, couldn't have a pager, couldn't have a cell phone. Nope. Um, and that was very frowned upon. But then, you know, I've had kids, I have a 23-year-old, 18-year-old, 8-year-old. Um, I've kind of watched the policies change in ebb and flow. Uh, and I think it kind of came for my oldest son and my, my second child, the 18-year-old now. It was almost like, okay, yeah, they can keep phones, but just don't pull them out. Right. Like, don't pull them out in class. Don't let them be a distraction. Well, see, in you're class. talking about a distraction in classes, and that definitely can be an issue. But here's something I've observed from afar. As also one of my roles as district hearing officer, one of the things that I've noticed over the last five years is that those school districts who do not have heavy cell phone policies. Mm-hmm. You don't hear a lot about cell phone incidences, but the school districts who do have strong cell phone policies and they're policing it and they're trying to track it and keep cell phones out tend to have more issues come up with cell phone use. That's just from my research. 
But what do you mean by issues? Um, bullying, incidents of bullying where um, students are being recorded in inappropriate ways, fights being recorded so that um, instead of being able to nip it in the bud, do your investigation, issue consequences, it's shared, you know, across different social media platforms and um, makes the situation worse. And it's embarrassing for students and sometimes for teachers, depending on what's being recorded. Um I don't have a lot of incidences of um, cheating in class or cell phones being used to, you know, make their assignments easier. Mostly it's bullying incidents or recording inappropriate behavior. The reason I wanted to bring it up, I know China, um, they ban children from using mobile phones at schools, but that's China. So really, yeah, that's so that's China like, as a country. And then back in, I think, 2018, the French government actually passed a law banning cell phones and other electronic communication devices from kindergartners. So wait, go, go ahead. Yeah. You're saying the country. The country. And now you're saying the French government, not a school superintendent or a state superintendent. The entire country, the entire country is banned. Yes. From it. They they actually passed a law. And so in this one was for in France, it was kindergartners, elementary school, and middle school. So basically age 15 and under were not allowed to have cell phones in the school, but they allowed them for the older kids. I, I just have one quick question. Sure. When you ban those types of devices, and not just cell phones, it said any type of communication device, that includes tablets, that includes laptops, then how are they still a part of the technological advances? Um, I guess you could probably have, uh, still like maybe allow iPads um, in like certain classes, but then that would be have to be provided by the school and have the firewalls and all that in place. And you have to disable, yeah, you'd have to disable messages. You'd have to um, ensure that TikTok and all those different apps weren't accessible. Well, and we know, we know in, in your state of Mississippi, Lamar County, they've re-banned phones, at least in, in that county. Like, you can't even pull them out in between class, where before I think they weren't allowed. Now, when did they do that? I think that was, I want to say, my son's senior year. And he liked it. He was like, it. you don't have to worry about the the stresses and the things, like what's being posted as I walk from- That must have happened after my son graduated. I think it probably was the <laughs> year after your son graduated. He he liked it because he, he was like, you don't have to like go to the bathroom and be like, what are people saying about- somebody or me or whoever, right? Like in between, that, that shouldn't be a stress. Yeah, the bullying and the, yeah. In today's day and age where you have to worry about dangers, school shootings, God forbid, you know, it's like parents want to be able to quickly get in touch with their kids and to say that the cell phones have to be in cars or wherever, just not brought to school at all, that, you know, you get pushback for that. So I, I don't know what the right answer is, but I will also will say in the United Kingdom, they there's an effort to ban phones there as well. Like they are recommending the government um, is going to announce or it looks like they're going to be trying to recommend that their school districts not allow the phones. But I don't think it's like a strict law saying you have to. Yeah. Listen, I'm not against it. I think cell phones have been a distraction since day one. I'm just surprised that we're just now coming together uh, as a country or as a government to do something about it. And I'm greatly interested in where the United States stands on this. Um, I think that it will be quite difficult um, to do that as a country here. I just think we're so opinionated um, and cell phones are, people are it's so right, dependent right? Like, on cell phones. I just wonder how that would come go across here. But I know districts are still trying to you know, protect every child and give them an opportunity to have a free and appropriate education. And it is difficult when access is right. I, I mean, there. I almost wonder if 
my older boys, um, it wasn't just a test. Like, can we allow phones in schools and will this work? And you're starting to hear people say, all right, we tried this for 10 years and yeah. it's not what we thought we could do. Like the, the distractions are too much. The social media power of grabbing attention is too much. Um, well, it's it's grown ex- exponentially. Right. I mean, and it's it's essentially, it's like, these are billion dollar companies who have psychologists working for them. Like it is, they, they are essentially handing out a drug almost, you know, like they know what they're doing in terms of getting attention. This is insane. So I guess let's say, all right, what, what could we do or what should we do if the decision is made? All right, we don't need to allow phones. And and there's one particular article I was reading in the Fordham Institute. Um, They had some suggestions and I'm just going to go through those real quick and you give me your thoughts. They, they suggest one, the expensive one, schools should invest in secure signal blocking pouches like yonder. That's the little ones like you, you come in and there's a central port in the, at the school and you, you hand your phone over and put it in the pouch and then you get to carry your pouch around, but then you have to go back to that point to get it unlocked on your way out. Oh, that's such a great idea. But can we deal with equitable instructional resources first? Right, I know. So Springfield, Massachusetts apparently has done this. Richmond, Virginia district is signing on to do it. Um, Springfield reported some positive results. So yeah, but I agree. You're right. Like, is that where we I just don't think that's at the top of the priority list for schools in poverty. So let's um, look at some other opportunities. Like, what if um, you just like have a strict rule, like they cannot be seen, I guess that's one thing you could do that. But then it really comes all back to enforcement. Like, is it you get it at the end of the day, like you get it back, which really isn't a punishment because you're not supposed to have it anyhow. Or do you like make the parents come back and get it? I know some districts do that. Um, but the bigger question is, is that a good use of administrative time and effort? So that's really one of the things they discuss in the article. Like, do teachers, teachers already have to deal with cheating, fights, so forth. Like, yep. is this another thing that should be thrown on their on their lap? And and it should not. And this article argues it it is. And then, in fact, it should be enforced the same. Like, a teacher shouldn't be able to be like, put your phone away. I'm not, I'm going to let it slide this time. Like, that shouldn't be a thing. It should be like you're witnessing a fight. If you're going to do this, you need to do it. And that's one person's opinion. But. And that's coming from someone who's not an educator. Exactly. Right. So I don't, I don't know what the solution is, but I think as I guess the observation for me, the takeaway for me is as we've kind of watched this play out over at least a decade, 15 years, maybe, I think more and more people are kind of getting behind the idea of like, this is not sustainable. Like having phones in schools, like kids are, I know, I do agree that they are a great distraction. I think that it's going to be geographical um, locations will determine what you can and cannot do. There will be some very strong opinionated parents who are not going to agree with it. Mm -hmm. There will be some parents who support it. And then there are going to be students who support it. But at the same time, there's so much to learn and do educationally with devices that that might be the only device that some children have. And now we want to take it from them. Right. So it's it's something to to study a little deeper. I think that um, there would be a lot of information to collect, maybe via surveys to see. And I just hope that it continues to be by district and not country. a country yeah. rule or you know something that is dictated by the government because that's when you'll have a revolt. Yeah, and I think in, here in the United States, uh, the land yeah. of the free, yeah, you probably won't see that happen anytime soon, where it's like a, a broad. Correct. Broad rule. So, all right. Well, Christina, are you ready for today's bright idea? Let's get it going. 
our guest in today's Bright Ideas segment has coached thousands of educators around the U.S. and abroad. Elena Aguilar is the founder and president of Bright Morning, and she's a regular contributor to Edutopia and Ed Week teacher. She recently published an article that grabbed my attention titled, How to Coach an Overwhelmed Teacher, and she has been kind enough to discuss that with us today. Elena, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. You know, I, I, when I hear the title that, that you wrote, it's How to Coach an Overwhelmed Teacher, I initially, my mind goes to, this is something that principals will do with teachers. But as, as I started thinking about it a little bit more, really, this could happen between colleagues or maybe a veteran teacher coaching a new teacher. Is that right? Sure, definitely. I think that it's also, um, I often think I coach myself. And so many of these strategies and ideas I keep in my back pocket for the moments when I feel overwhelmed. You, you know, actually, yeah, I've had a situation where, where I was feeling overwhelmed and I was reading through your stuff and it w- didn't even have to do with teaching. And I was applying some of what I was reading in this article just to my own life. So yeah, it is very valuable in that way. Um, so, so what I really want to do is kind of break down how you divide things up in coaching a teacher that may be overwhelmed. It, and you really start by breaking down what it means to be overwhelmed, like the actual word over- overwhelmed, correct? Mm-hmm. Right. So it's interesting because psychologists have created some really useful resources to help us understand emotions. And they categorize emotions into what they call emotion families. And so, for example, anger and frustration is um, a reflection of anger, sort of a degree of anger. And they talk about sadness and shame and these big buckets. And in any of those resources, when you scan through the words for emotions, you won't actually see overwhelmed or stressed because those are what psychologists call an emotional state and not necessarily emotion. And they cut across emotion families, which is is most important to understand or what's most useful about that is to understand that overwhelm is comprised of a whole bunch of feelings. And that's why sometimes it feels overwhelmed, can feel overwhelming because it can be sadness and fear and anger and shame. And it can be all of these feelings kind of mixed together. You know, you actually linked to um, a page on your website, which is um, brightmorningteam.com. And I'm going to put this link there, but there's a page that you can dive a little deeper into. And it looks like you've, you've broken it down to, I guess, eight core emotions. But then there's, I mean, hundreds of words that kind of fall under each category of those core emotions. Like, for example, you have fear, and then that's a core emotion, but then you might be feeling jumpy, nervous, panicked, scared, shocked, and so forth. Um, why is it important to kind of pinpoint the the core emotion that you're feeling? Why have to narrow that down? So that resource is one that I use all the time in coaching, but I also use it for myself. I use it with my son um, because it helps us to take the first step in responding to any intense emotion, which is to understand it a little bit more and to be able to break down its components and to see the shades of it. And so often when someone's experiencing a strong emotion or they're talking about something that had happened, I'll pull out that document and I'll say, just go through this and circle the words that reflect how you felt. 
And what that does in that moment um, is actually one of the most critical things that can happen, which is it gives us some language to describe the experience. And when it gives us language, it helps us to have a really healthy kind of um, detachment or distance from the actual experience. It kind of pulls us out just enough so that then we can take the next steps, which are really getting curious about what happened, trying to understand what happened. But often when we're experiencing intense emotion, we're sort of so in it and um, swirling around in it that we can't take the next steps to, to unpack it. So that's how that tool can be really useful. And you were describing, you know, circling these words. That that is the first step. So, so if you have an overwhelmed teacher, maybe a colleague, and and you can see that that teacher's just, you know, they're up up to here with it. And um, you say you you would suggest either pulling out that sheet and saying, you know, which category do you fall in? Let's circle some of these words. Or if you don't have a sheet like that, I guess maybe you could you you suggest describing your emotion as a color. Yeah, I mean, what we want to first do, like the first step, is to have to be able to to name the experience, name the emotion, describe it. And so sometimes if you don't, a lot of times people will say, I don't even know how to describe it. Like, I don't even know what I was feeling. And that's when you can say, you know, well, if it was a color, what color might it be? And people say like red, but then there was like specks of green and flashes of yellow. And that's great because they're starting to be able to put some language and some concepts to it. Uh, you know, you could ask them, where in your body did you feel those emotions? Where, um, you know, what what kind of weather would it be like? Any kind of analogy or metaphor? Again, the first step is to just be able to put some language to it, which actually helps us feel calmer because then, again, we're sort of stepping. It's almost like if we're in a storm and we can put up an umbrella, then we can sort of look out and see what's there rather than just being soaked and drenched by it. I know you've been coaching teachers for several years, but I mean, you actually have also a lot more years in the classroom as well. I mean, did you see a lot of teachers, colleagues that that would find themselves in this position? Definitely. And I would also add students too. you know, all of these strategies you can use with kids when they're overwhelmed and they are experiencing intense emotions or they shut down. And so sort of as you said in the opening, these are strategies for engaging with emotions and learning from emotions and every human being experiences emotions. So whether it's, you know, your child, your student, your colleague, um, your partner, these are, these are resources that are useful. So, so step two, um, you list as recalling previous experiences. And does that mean just anything where you felt overwhelmed? Right. So you can ask somebody something like, do you, you know, can you recall another time when you felt this uh, sort of soup of emotions or intensity or this, these kind of experiences? Um, and one thing that can happen when you ask them about that is that it can help them then start to recall how they managed that experience, how they responded to it. But it also reminds them that the emotional state won't last forever. So when someone's in a, in a sort of moment when they're caught by these unpleasant emotional experiences, and then if they're receptive and you can, re you, you know, you can ask them, can you recall another time when you felt like this or similar? Um, 
part of what happens is they go like, right, okay, this won't last forever. This isn't permanent. And so really, then you say step three is is kind of to recognize, I guess, I don't know if recognize is the right word, but but you say that being overwhelmed can create paralysis. I mean, you, you almost probably can be like, I can't do anything. I can't grade any papers. I can't focus on my next lesson. Um, right. So so you try to find a reason to, to work beyond that? Right. Or to, again, when you're asking them to recall a previous instance when they felt like that, um, it helps them. That that feeling of paralysis is one that's like, this is never going to change. I'm never going to get out of this. And so recalling a previous incident helps them remember um, that these emotional states pass. And that can kind of, you know, at least it's like there's a light at the end of this tunnel of suffering right now. So, so next we need to identify... A, a step to take to get beyond that, right? Right. And and actually these, um, I call them five tips for coaching overwhelm because they could be sequential steps or you might bounce around depending on okay, what someone's experiencing. Um, and one of the steps is to have the other person m- name or identify one little next step that they could take that's really small and manageable and doable that might help them uh, sort of get out of this really uncomfortable place they're in. And so, but what's really important is that the other person identifies that step because when they're feeling really overwhelmed, they're also feeling really disempowered, right? If you think about feeling overwhelmed, Uh, you know, an image that comes to my mind is sort of like you're crumpled on the floor of your classroom and you're just looking out at the stacks of things that need to be done and cleaned and organized. And it's just like you're kind of crumpled into a corner on the floor and you have to be able to say like, okay, if I just, you know, toss out the moldy remnants of that sign experiments experiment from a month ago, if I can just toss that in the trash, that'll be one good next step. Um, But the person who's overwhelmed has to identify it because in identifying that step, they'll feel better just in that moment. Which kind of leads me to another point you make. You talk about the importance of listening. Um, I mean, from a percentage standpoint, if you're coaching somebody, how much do you is you listening and how much is them talking? That's a great question. Um, You know, we all talk too much. We just do. I think one of my top tips for coaches is basically like, just stop talking and see what happens. Like get to a place where you're asking, see what happens if you really challenge yourself to go into a conversation and speak as little as possible. And so you can say things like, tell me more about that. Tell me more. What else is coming up? And it's amazing how when you give people that space, they can often talk through their own problems or their own suffering. And I think, you know, next time, next time you're in a, in a a situation which you're feeling strong emotions, just pay attention to how others respond and, and notice what it's like when people listen to you and give you that space to talk through what's going on for you. It's really powerful and, and um, underused. And so we don't have to solve other people's problems. We don't have to fix things. What most of us really truly want is to be heard and to experience empathy. 
I think you're right about that. And and so you say after that, you you kind of set up a, a plan for action as you're kind of wrapping things up. Can you describe to me, like, let's just say you had an overwhelmed teacher um, who, you know, was having trouble um, just with her job in general, but she has a whole stack of work to do. I mean, what would that plan for action look like, do you think? It would, what's critical to the plan, again, is that that teacher identifies what it is that she might do. And it doesn't mean that as a coach or colleague, you can't make suggestions because sometimes, you know, when you're overwhelmed, you just kind of can't think of what to do. But ultimately, the overwhelmed person has to choose. And it could be something as little as like, okay, my next step is to get a good night's sleep. And then tomorrow to I'm going to ask I'm going to ask my colleague or my friend to help me figure out how to tackle the mess in my classroom. Or it could be like, you've got 150 essays to grade. And the first step could be, I'm going to look at my calendar for the next week. And I'm going to see where I can block out the time to, to start working on these. Or it could be, you know, sitting here on the floor, I'm going to grab two of those essays and I'm going to read them while I'm sitting here. Um, so it's a small step. It's a manageable step. Part of what's important in that step is that it galvanizes the overwhelmed person to feel like, okay, I can do this. I can get back into a place of action. And if you're in a coaching session or if you're a principal sort of supporting a teacher, it's really important that the session ends with one step because we do want to be heard, we want empathy, and we want to feel like I can do something about this. And that um, in order to feel that often, we need to have sort of a, a clear and concrete step. I know you've been in a position to monitor educators for a while. And do you think that it's getting harder? Do you see that teachers are more stressed, more pressure, or is it kind of always been the same? I think it's definitely harder. And I think there's definitely more stress and pressure um, for so many reasons. Teachers are under so much pressure to support the needs of students. Student needs are extensive. And in some ways, just because of the larger sociopolitical situation in our country, um, and economic situation, they get harder and harder every year. Funding for schools is uh, going down pretty much across the country. The conditions in which educators are working are really challenging, and I only see them getting harder. It, you know, it's, it's off subject, but but we've talked about on this show a lot, um, places with high cost of living like the area that you're in in Oakland. And, and we kind of wonder, how do teachers even afford to have a place to live working on a teacher's salary. I mean, do you, does that a, a major problem, a major discussion in your area? You know, it really is. And it's actually private schools and public schools. There's a public school, a private school that I work with where they are trying to raise teacher salaries basically to about 150000 a year because the turnover rate is so high and we can't keep teachers in the area. And this is a private school that has um, tremendous resources and even with really high salaries and, and really relatively great conditions, you know, teaching classes of 13, 15 kids, we can't keep teachers. Um, the cost of living is just so high in this area. And so it, it really is a unique challenge. 
And then we have districts and, and schools with students who really deserve the very best, most experienced teachers. So it's um, this is a structural inequity that really needs to be addressed. Um, if somebody wants to keep up with you elsewhere, are, are you big into Twitter, Instagram? Where do you like to typically hang out? I am very active on Twitter and Instagram with definitely a different tone and flavor on each of those. And it's easiest to find the links by going to my website, which I imagine you'll link, but it's brightmorningteam.com. And that's the easiest place to find the links to all of um, the places on social media that I participate in. And while I've got you here, what, what is kind of the mission of, of Bright Morning? We exist to bring transformative learning practices to schools so that we can create healthy, resilient communities where everyone thrives. And we mean every child and every adult. And it looks like you're, you're a pretty big team for, for a consulting type firm. It looks like you have a lot of people kind of teamed up with you, right? We do. We're a team of 12 and we work across the United States and internationally. We work with public, private charter schools. Um, we do a lot of workshops and events and on a number of different topics. Well, Elena, I appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. Are you ready for our pop quiz? Sure. All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Art. Okay. Well, why is that? <laughs> uh... Uh, because we need more creativity in the world. We need to uh, expand the way that we engage with our experience. I think we need to tap into the part of ourselves that is um, that we haven't explored enough, which is our creativity and our way of communicating through other modalities. We do a lot of thinking in our heads. And I think we need to learn how to learn and to share stories and to communicate with our bodies, with images, with song, with movement. I think that would ultimately bring us closer together as a species. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? How to respond to and engage with emotions, how to get curious, how to ask questions, how to open our heart, how to respond to our own fears, um, how to heal from trauma, both our nation's collective traumas and our individual traumas. What does every child deserve? Every child deserves to be loved and cared for and to belong to a community. And every child deserves to know how to read and think critically and access all the core content and curriculum that is out there. What is the biggest challenge for today's educators? The biggest challenge for today's educators might be fear. We need to access our courage. We need to figure out how to stand up and demand the changes that our students deserve. And those include changes in the funding structures to schools. They include changes in content and curriculum. They include changes in how teachers are talked about and treated and how schools are organized and run. And I think the hardest thing is that every time we think about needing to make those changes or needing to say something, we encounter our own fear. What's the best gift to give an educator? 
Ooh, the best gift to give an educator, probably empathy, followed by a salary raise. <laughs> Which teacher changed your life? Well, that would be an informal teacher, and that would have been my mother, because the teachers I had K-12 were um, somewhere in between immemorable and damaging. And the only reason I learned anything in school, I think, is because when I came home, my mother talked to me about books and ideas and what was going on with the world. And she talked to me about what I was writing, and she gave me feedback on what I was writing, and she encouraged me when teachers in school did not. And last question, pen or pencil? Pen. All right, Elena Aguilar, we appreciate you taking the time. And uh, if anyone wants to check out the uh, links to her articles, of course, you can check that out on the uh, classdismisspodcast.com website. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismisspodcast.com or tweet us at classdismissed. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed. <laughs>